I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you to everybody for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. We have got a great show coming up for you. Our theme this hour is seriously funny because we have some guests who are, in fact, seriously funny. We have Bill Oakley here, who is one of the head writers from The Simpsons. You also know him from Portlandia, Futurama. Uh, we've also got Phoebe Robinson here from the Two Dope Queens podcast. And Phoebe and Bill are, are naturally funny people. That's kind of their thing. There are other people who are not naturally funny, and that's okay, but they should not try to be funny. I'm talking, of course, about Alex Trebek. The interviews that Alex Trebek does with the Jeopardy contestants after the first commercial break are some of the most awkward human interactions that have ever been captured on video. They would show those interviews to detainees in Guantanamo to try to break them. The U.S. military was like, this is even too much for us. But that's kind of his thing. That's fine. That's Alex Trebek's lane. The problem is this week, he tried to break out of his lane and be funny. I want to play something for you. This is from Jeopardy! this week. This is Alex Trebek talking to a woman whose hobby is battle rapping other nerds. <laughs> this is the tape of that interaction. I think it's very fun. It's called Nerdcore Hip Hop. It's Nerdcore Hip Hop. Hip -hop. Yes. Um, it's uh, people who identify as nerdy, rapping about the things they love, video games, science fiction, having a hard time meeting romantic partners, you know. <laughs> it's really catchy and fun. Now, now, here's the thing. You can hear Trebek's gears turning. There's this kind of long pregnant pause where he's at a real fork in the road. He's like, am I going to just have a straight answer? Am I going to just move on or am I going to try to be funny? And he chooses wrong. He tries to be funny. Losers, in other words. Well, I think... <laughs> <laughs> sure. IT. No. I'm going to take uh, people who should not try to make jokes for 500. <laughs> Our next guest 
is seriously funny, and also funny about serious things. Phoebe Robinson is the co-host of the wildly popular podcast, Two Dope Queens. She's also got her own new solo podcast called So Many White Guys, which I assume is at least partially about me. (laughs) She's been on a million TV shows, and she's rocked them all. Her new book is You Can't Touch My Hair and Other Things I Still Have to Explain. Please welcome Phoebe Robinson to Livewire. What the radio audience can't see is that you brought out a bottle of champagne. Yes. And I think you're, you're celebrating because... Uh, because my book, which came out last week, uh, made it on the New York Times bestsellers list, which is crazy. Yeah. It's, um, it's number four on the paperback nonfiction. Like, I'm above Mindy Kaling, which is very insane to me because I'm obsessed with her, so... I hope she doesn't hate me, but like kind of hates me. So, <laughs> well, congratulations. Should we um, violate every single contractual thing we've signed with this theater by shooting a cork into the audience? Let's do it. Right. Let's do it. Here we go. Yeah! <laughs> I, I have to say, Phoebe, mm-hmm. I just kind of instinctively, the champagne was starting to bubble over, it's and then okay. I just kind of took it's a slug okay. of it. It was nice. It felt like our, our wedding reception. I was like, oh, babe, you always do that. Um, he's so crazy. Would that be like uh, one, of your, <laughs> one of your imaginary subway boyfriends that you write about in the book? Yeah. Yes, it would be. I have, I have tons. I'm single. Um, thank you. And so my outfit is very, like, Diane. You guys can't, who can't see me, I'm very, like, recently divorced Diane Lane. Like, that is... <laughs> I'm very covered, but also like showing a little bit of leg. So I'm like, do I want to date again? I've been hurt. I don't know. So that's what I'm going for tonight, which I think is awesome. Um, (laughs) This book is hilarious. Thank you. But I I have to tell you, I think I'd had some inclination, Mm -hmm. but you know, as a white dude, it's not probably something I think about a ton. The the role that hair plays for African-American women and also yeah. the amount of times that white people want to touch mm-hmm. the hair of black women. Yeah. If you had to like ballpark it, how many times do you think somebody, in particular a white person, has tried to or asked to touch your hair? It just happened like a weekend ago. So How does that conversation go? Well, I was, I was in L.A. I uh, had recently shot Cone in No Braggies. And that night I was back in my hotel in the lobby just catching up on the phone with a friend. And uh, this white lady was walking towards me and she was smiling a lot. And I was like, maybe she knows the podcast. But I feel like a lot of people still don't know what I look like yet. So I was like, oh, no, I don't think she recognizes me from the podcast. And she comes closer She's like, I know you're on the phone. I just want to tell you I think you're really pretty. And I was like, thanks so much. I'm wearing sweatpants. You overlooked that. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a deep person. And so then <laughs> uh, and then I went back to my phone conversation. But out of the periphery, I just saw her like pacing back and forth near me. And I was like, what is going on? And then she just comes over and just starts petting my hair. And I was like, I was like, hold on, hold on. I was like, wait, what's happening? She's like, you're just so pretty. And then she goes to the bathroom. And I was like, what the hell? Is it possible she had just come from a rave? And Maybe. she was on like a lot of Molly? That might be it. Because she was so excited about my hair. And I'm like, it's, it's cool, but like, relax. So it happens a lot. You write yeah. a lot in the book about the conversations actually between black women about mm-hmm. if straightening your hair or mm-hmm. applying product to your hair is the right way to go or if leaving it natural is the right way. I, I, my takeaway from what you write is whatever somebody wants to do is the right way. Yes. But what is your personal journey with your hair? This is a weave. Uh, normally I have a fro and it's very like Frederick Douglassy. you know what I mean? It's very like just full of so much wisdom and <laughs> just hanging out with Abe Lincoln, you know. Um, 
Me and Abe. But uh, <laughs> I am currently shooting a show for Amazon, Jill Soloway's new show. And so, Whoa, that's the uh, person behind Transparent. Yes, and she's amazing. And so I had this like low-budget Beyonce look when I auditioned and did the pilot. And now I have to keep this. But normally I keep it like dreadlocks or braids or whatever. And so growing up, I would say from probably like six to like 17, I straightened my hair used to go get it permed, you know, like every six to eight weeks and like ruined my hair and it like hurt and I hated it. I didn't like the way my hair looked. And so now I try and like switch it up a lot. And yeah, I just think uh, it's I, like a farmer's field. You want to rotate the crops. I do. So you don't <laughs> use up all of the nutrients in the scalp. You are so woke. I love that. Um, <laughs> you so get black hair. That's great. That is so great. That's so great. Oh my God, cheers to you. That was amazing. Um, there's hope for America. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I like to change my hair a lot and I want to take black hair back and make it something I'm excited about and not something where I'm like, oh, I have to wear it a certain way so I can get a job or I can get a man or so people won't judge me. So I really want to have fun with it. And black women can wear their hair however they want. They look gorgeous no matter what. And that's kind of what I like to do with my hair. Nice. Um, We've got Phoebe Robinson here. All right, Phoebe, just hang on for one second. We've got to take a very short break. We'll be back with much more with Phoebe Robinson from Two Dope Queens. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot. They are advocates of active living, and they make the Jarvis sit-stand desk. The Jarvis is a marvel of design. How do I know? Because it's the desk I use when I am on stage hosting Livewire Radio, which you might have heard of. You know, we get it in our head that once we become adults and once we go to quote unquote real jobs, we got to stop being kids and we got to sit quietly at a desk and do our whatever spreadsheet stuff. Don't give in to that notion. With Ergo Depot designed products, you can sit, but you can also stand, you can lean, you can stretch, you can walk. You can do all of that kind of moving around that you used to love to do. It's good for you. It'll help you be more productive. And you can find out more about all of it at ergodepot.com. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. We have Phoebe Robinson here from the Two Dope Queens podcast and also of the New York Times bestseller list oh with her God. new book. We're enjoying <laughs> some champagne so on crazy. stage. So crazy. Is that, I mean, that's got to feel really crazy to you. It does. I found out yesterday and I was shooting and I was tired. And then everyone from Plume, my publisher, they called me and they're like, hey, okay, so we want to talk to you. And I'm like, please don't don't stress me out. And they're like, well, we know you wanted to be on the bestsellers list. And there was like a long pause. And I was like, are you trying to Ryan Seacrest me? Like, what is happening? And they were like, you made it. And I was in my, I was like in a lift. And I was like, this is weird. <laughs> so that was really cool. And I was kind of freaking out. Um, but I also was subcon, like, I just felt conscious about it. Because I was like, the, the driver is hearing this. I don't want him to think that I think I'm special because I'm on a list. But also, like, I kind of am. And, like, <laughs> you should, like, buy my book right now. But it was, it was fine. It was good. <laughs> the book is great. Uh, you write about what you call your not-so-guilty pleasures. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about a couple of those. Okay, great. Uh, can we talk about... Not so guilty pleasure number three, mm -hmm. which if you don't remember it by number, it's uh, pretending your celebrity husband has died and you're doing mm -hmm. an interview on CNN mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know, I know, I know. I'm a dumpster fire, I know. But it is, I don't know, I just, I don't know when I started having this fantasy. <laughs> and I've so many, I had so many like dead celebrity husbands. I had like George Clooney died. Denzel Washington died, you know, like Benedict Cumberbatch. I was like, no one saw that coming because he's so young. And, you know, I just envision I'm like walking like on my, compa my compound with my like tiny dog and just talking to Diane Sawyer about how I'm getting through it, you know. 
Is there an you important know? element? <laughs> I mean, this person, this imaginary person yes. is, is, is not alive anymore in this fantasy. Correct. Why does it matter who it was? Well, it's just like, I, I like to envision myself in a power couple and then... <laughs> You know, I do this interview and then like I'm in this movie. It's like an indie drama I'm in. I get nominated for an Oscar and I dedicate it to my dead husband. Like this is all, this is for you. I miss you so much. So yeah, it's really awful. (laughs) But it's so fun. You guys should try it. It's great. (laughs) What about not so guilty pleasure number five, Googling yourself? Yes, I know. I know. I so I blame the Kardashians, but I'm really into branding and like just checking like what people are saying about my podcast and stuff. And it's all it's mostly good. But I um I a few years ago, I I'm a very sweaty person just to get that out of the way. I'm an extremely sweaty person. And I was like, but I'm really scared about the deodorant, like causing health issues for people. So I'm like, I'm just going to switch to like an all natural Tom's deodorant and it's going to be great. And then I did this stand up set and it was filmed and it was like on a website and I just had these giant pit stains. And you know, we're part- sponsored by Tom's of Maine. Right. <laughs> I mean, we're sponsored by Wait, Tom's of Maine. Seriously? No. no. Okay. I was Are like, oh my me? God. I love Tom's of Maine. Yeah. They're great. Um, Tom's of Maine, not doing anything to address the problem for 20 years. That's actually the ad we do for them. Yeah, someone just wrote like, hello, pit stains. And I was like switching my deodorant immediately. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't Googled myself. So after I saw that, I went back to like the heavy duty, like just j- dump all the aluminum on me. And then my friend Baron Vaughn, he and his girlfriend, they make deodorant and so they made me some for my birthday uh and that is real portland i know that was for you guys just branding okay i'm good at it um so they made me the deodorant and it is phenomenal i'm sweating so much right now but i smell great it's awesome i love it i'm talking to phoebe robinson by the way from two dope queens she's got a new book out you can't touch my hair And other things I still have to explain. Mm -hmm. You talk about how you wanted to be an actor, but it was kind of like a secret dream. You didn't really want to talk about it. Why was it a secret dream? Because I I went to like a predominantly white high school and I never, I don't know, I just never felt like I was pretty or whatever. Like I knew I was like the funny sidekick friend, but I never like really went for anything because I just felt like I, not that I wasn't worthy, but that like it just wasn't, going to happen for me so I was like I'll just write and maybe I can like work my way in through it but like yeah I I did plays but I would be like in the background like not really saying a whole lot so yeah I was just really kind of scared to want that dream but here we are but yeah here you are shooting things with Jill Mm -hmm, mm Soloway do you still go on casting calls and do auditions and stuff like that I do but I feel like I'm in a position now where I will just like tell my agents like this role is trash and I'm not going out for it and like they just know that I'm going to be that client who's like not going to go because there's so many are there any other people who act here great okay (laughs) You're like, I'm brying yeah. my own pickles. Cool. Yeah. Um, that's very close. That's really close. Um, I have a record shop. Cool. Um, the exact same thing. So I get like all these casting calls because I'm a black person for whoever's listening doesn't know that yet. I'm a black lady. And so a lot of it is like sassy best friend to like, I don't know, some one white lady from like once upon a time. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, I don't know what you mean, but I'm going to assume that's a thing. It's a show on ABC that has just like generic looking brunette white women doing like Cinderella. It's like, I don't know. But I, am I wrong? Am I wrong? Like, that was the most accurate description of that show ever. Generic. I think you uh, might be. <laughs> you might be bumping up against a non-overlap in the Venn diagram <laughs> of our listeners and people who know about Once Upon a Time. No overlap, possibly. <laughs> but it's a lot of like, hey, I don't have a life, but I want to listen to your dating life. Or I'm like a sassy assistant who's smarter than my boss, but I like being an assistant. And so it was just a lot of that. Or 
Or I've noticed this now, I'm 32 now, so I notice a lot of times it's like, can you play 25? There's a lot of like, play younger and like, be like the love interest of some like gross looking, extremely older gentleman who has no charming personality. And I'm just like spreading my legs because some dude wrote it. So it's and really- wait, wait a sec. It's really, it's insane. It's you're, insane. You're turning those opportunities down? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe because you have a book on the New York Times bestseller list. Phoebe Robinson, everybody. All right, Phoebe Robinson, you yes. are one half of the super popular podcast, Two Dope Queens. Yes. And that is why... That is why we thought you would be the perfect person okay. to take a quiz we've put together oh, about famous queens from history. We're calling this game, Yes, Queens! <laughs> yes, Queens, yes, Queens, yes, Queens! Oh, I'm so, I'm so dumb. You don't realize how dumb I am. Well, when you hear the queens that we've singled out, you're not going to be so scared. All right. Okay. Okay. Two of these things are real, and one of them is made up. Oh, you gosh. try to pick the one that's okay. made up Great. about famous queens throughout history, okay? Cool. All right. Queen Elizabeth. She's real. She's real. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you did it. Congratulations. That was the question was, is she real? And you totally nailed it. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. Okay. Yes. Two of these things are real things, okay. and one of them is a thing that we made up. Great. Okay, Queen Elizabeth. Okay. Was she the first head of state to send an email? That sounds accurate. Was she born with a clubbed foot? I feel like I would have heard about that. Are you going to say clubbed foot you know is the I mean? made up thing? Like, and what's the third one real quick? Third one is... She was a mechanic and truck driver during World War II. I feel like that, is, that could be true. <laughs> oh, so two is, two is false. Yes, you're exactly right, Phoebe Robinson. Oh my gosh, that was scary. That was really scary. You did great, you're doing, are you doing better than you thought you would? I am. Good. I'm very great. excited. Okay. I'm very excited. Next up. Okay. Queen Latifah. Yes, I know her. Great. Well, I don't know know her, but I... I'll Here are three movie. things about Queen Latifah. One of them we made up. Great. Queen Latifah. Her real name is Dana Elaine Owens. Yes, I've seen Behind the Music. Go on. She... And had a four-year feud with fellow artist Foxy Brown in the late 1990s. Okay. And she also beat Brian Cranston and Malcolm Jamal Warner in Celebrity Jeopardy. Oh, okay. One, huh? That is a tough one because she's on, very smart. I got some music for you to tell. But I feel like she had, she had, I watched the VH1 like hip hop honors. And so she did have beef with a rapper. I can't remember if it was Foxy Brown or not. But I feel like, no, because Queen was like done with rapping by the time Foxy came around with her BS. So I'm gonna say that that's fake. Oh. No, oh my gosh. Nass Queen. I don't think that's a saying, but maybe it starts here. No. The made up one is that she beat Brian Cranston and Malcolm Jamal Warner That sounds very Jeff. convincing. It really does, I mean, that was a great those other celebrities are kind of perfect for having yeah. been on Celebrity Jeopardy. Okay. Yeah. You Queen. guys didn't help me out with that. You guys were okay. very quiet, white people, on the Queen Latifah tip. It's okay. It's okay. We're going to come back. As they say, success has many mothers, but failure is an orphan. <laughs> Saudi audience really left you in the lurch, Robinson. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> we only have time for one more. Do you want it to be about the band Queen or about Steve McQueen? Well, the actor or the director. Oh, great question. The actor. I will do, I'll do the actor. Yeah. Steve McQueen. Mm -hmm. These are three things about Steve McQueen. One of them we made up. His mother was a lady of the night and his father was a circus stunt man. He turned down the lead role in Dirty Harry. He never learned how to read. <laughs> that's that's that white guy is like that's ridiculous. So <laughs> that's false. 
He never learned how to read his faults. Yeah. You are absolutely right, Phoebe Robinson. <laughs> nice job. That's how you play Yas Queens. <laughs> Phoebe Robinson, everybody. This week's show is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. October is non-GMO month, and Whole Foods is celebrating the way they do every month by offering more than 25,000 organic and 8,500 non-GMO products. Because what makes sense in October makes sense the rest of the year, too. Visit them at WholeFoodsMarket.com. The first time I saw our guest band this hour, it wasn't actually the band I saw. It was this insane old tour bus that they had been traveling in. Uh, it was at a music festival, and I asked somebody, whose bus is that? And they said, that's Blind Pilot's bus, man. And I knew immediately I was going to be a fan of this band. They've appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman, and more importantly, on my iPhone earbuds, on many a jog and bike ride. Their latest album is and then like lions. Please welcome our friends, Blind Pilot to Livewire. Thank you. 
That's Blind Pilot right here on Livewire. They're going to be in Eugene on October 23rd. And November 2nd, they'll be at the Depot in Salt Lake City. Their new record is And Then Like Lions. This is Livewire Radio. Our theme this week is seriously funny, and we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater, what makes you laugh? Uh, somebody who didn't use their name said, uh, reading the poetry I wrote when I was in high school. <laughs> if you can laugh about it, that's great. Most of us cry softly. Andrea says uh, what makes her laugh is every time my three-year-old daughter says, yes, queen, yes. <laughs> Somebody who also didn't want to use their real name unless their actual name is Lady said, what makes them laugh? The word moist. Yeah. Let's all just sit with that for a minute. Just let that soak <laughs> in. Our theme this hour is seriously funny, and there is probably no one in Portland who has a more serious job than our next guest, Dr. Brian Drucker. He directs the Knight Cancer Institute at Oregon Health and Science University, armed with a one- billion-dollar budget, Dr. Drucker's team is trying to create a large-scale early detection program for cancer. We had him on the show a couple of years ago. We were talking about this stuff, and we want to check in with him. So here he is now. Please welcome Dr. Brian Drucker to Livewire. So, so, Luke, I've got a question for you. All right. Topic is seriously funny, right? Correct. The, the theme of the show is seriously funny. You brought me here to talk about cancer, right? <laughs> well, we thought it couldn't all be funny. Some of it needed to be serious. But if you've got any jokes you want to roll out, this is totally a fine time for that, too. So I'm in the Alex Trebek camp here. Uh, oh. I'm, I'm seriously not funny, and my family will tell you that. <laughs> About 2009, I won an award, the Lasker Award, a pretty famous award. Some people consider it America's Nobel, but <laughs> now, thank you. Yeah, that really, um, you really dropped that casually, Dr. Yeah, Drucker. Yeah, so, well, you know, thank it you. It so, like something you've done now, before. But I had to give a talk, and so I asked my then 11-year-old son for some advice. And he went, why do I ask my 11-year-old son? Well, he had just been elected class president based on a talk he had given. So I thought, he's a good, good speaker. So he said, well, Dad, you should do what I did. You should tell a joke. Then he looked at me really serious and said, actually, Dad, don't tell a joke. You're not funny. <laughs> <laughs> when we last talked to you, you were about to get this total of a billion dollars, which was raised through a variety of, of sources. How do you use that money to try to cure cancer, which seems like an incredibly challenging thing? What we've set out is an ambitious goal of trying to detect cancer at its earliest, most curable stages. Our view is that if we can detect cancer early, stage one, curable, we can save many, many more lives than we do now. Right now, it's almost like we say, Let's wait till it gets really bad, and then we'll treat it. We need to back the clock up, get cancer earlier, treat it, and cure it. And we think we can do that by assembling a team of 30 of the brightest investigators in the country and their teams, all told about 300 people working here trying to solve that problem. Is there something qualitatively different about different cancers, some of them being more aggressive than others, or is it really a matter of just like catching it in time? There certainly are some cancers that are more aggressive, but generally it is about catching it in time, catching them a little bit earlier in some cases, or in other cases, we may just watch and wait if we don't think it's going to be lethal. But we really need to take the approach of understanding the biology, understanding that transition. And so when you look back at the work that I did for treating a particular type of leukemia with a drug Gleevec, we treat actually pretty early in the course of the disease before it's too far advanced. And we took a leukemia that once had a three to five year life expectancy, and now people are expected to live a normal lifespan. That's, right. That's... This is... 
I believe this is why you won that fancy award. Yes, it right? is. <laughs> um, because you were part of this uh, group that found this particular approach, which took this certain kind of leukemia from being fatal to being a manageable condition. Do you think in your lifetime you'll be able to be a part of another discovery like that? Or is that like a once-in-a-lifetime deal? For, for many, many years, the president of OHSU would introduce me as Brian Drucker. He discovered Gleevec, and we think he has another one in him. Huh. That's <laughs> so a lot like, of pressure. Like, yeah, yeah like, this, is, this is once in a generation kind of a, a breakthrough. But that's why I became the director of the Night Cancer Institute, so I could hire 30 people, and one of them is going to have a Gleevec in them. Right. But that's the reality is that we need to bring a team of people together to get to the next level and the next breakthrough. And I'm, I'm confident we can do that, certainly in my lifetime. Is there one recent discovery or piece of progress that has you particularly excited? The most exciting thing we've seen in the past couple of years has been the explosion of immune therapies, treatments that actually activate our own immune system to help eradicate tumors. And what we're seeing is that in some tumors, anywhere between 20 to 40% of patients are responding but they're responding durably. So I'll give you an example. I have one patient who I've been working with for almost three years with a type of cancer where he was told he had six to 12 months. We enrolled him on a trial of one of these immunotherapies. He's still here two and a half, three years later doing the things he enjoys doing and getting more quality time. That is remarkable to me, and we're seeing that over and over again with these new immune therapies. When we think about combining the immune therapies with some of the targeted therapies like Gleevec and other treatments that I've developed, we actually think with the right combinations, we can see even better results. So oncologists actually are now optimists. When I started out in this business, we were a bunch of pessimists because we didn't have many tools. Now we have lots and lots of tools in our armamentarium, and we're seeing results that we never imagined possible, and we're optimists, which is just a great place to be. Do you think that there's even a remote chance that cancer could be cured in your lifetime? Cure is an interesting notion. And so what I talk about is, can cancer become a manageable condition that is no longer feared? And so when I, my patients with leukemia, they'll, now when they, they talk about it, it's, I have leukemia and it's not a big deal. I just take a pill a day. Imagine if Many, many more cancers were like that, and we're on the cusp of seeing that. And I'm certainly, if I live at least another 15 or 20 years, we will see that future. Well, you got to see that class president kid of yours grow up and become <laughs> U.S. president or something. Well, so he's we'll... off to college now, and so that was a big event, and we'll see how he does. A lot of, lot of pressure. What's your dad do? Oh, he cures cancer. What are you doing? <laughs> Liberal arts studies. <laughs> Dr. Brian Drucker from the Knight Cancer Institute at Oregon Health and Science University. Thank you so much. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. <laughs> Alaska Airlines, fly nice. Indeed. Our theme this hour has been seriously funny, and we asked the audience to fill out these cards uh, that describe the things that make them laugh. Uh, somebody who didn't give their name said, what makes them laugh is when the cat tries to jump on the counter and misses. <laughs> Here's something that makes Leah laugh is... Book it, the Pizza Hut funded reading program in public schools. <laughs> All right. Getting a little political. I here. know. Carried that one around for a while. Yeah. Too. Jeez. And uh, Robin, who's here with us, says, What makes Robin laugh? Old people getting in or out of boats. <laughs> <laughs> mean, but funny. Tough but fair. Uh, uh, it's really anyone getting in yeah, or out of a boat. No one Can looks we be good. honest? No one's ever looked good. No. Oh, boy. All right. As we've mentioned, our theme this hour is Seriously Funny, which happens to be our next guest's specialty. Bill Oakley was about to join the Foreign Service 
when a script he co-wrote caught the attention of an obscure TV show you may have heard of called The Simpsons. He went on to become co-head writer and showrunner of the series. His other credits include Futurama, Mission Hill, and Portlandia, among others. Please welcome Bill Oakley to Livewire. Bill, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Were you like a uh, like a funny kid? Were you writing cartoons or jokes in some way or little fake movies? What um, were you? What well, were you like? I was I was more of a lonely kid, to be honest. Um, we lived out in the country, and also this was back in the day before TV was on all day. It was just a couple channels, and there was no VCRs. And when my brother went off to college, he left a huge stack of old Mad magazines in the attic, and that was how I spent almost all of my spare time reading those. And from that. Well, I learned how to read, which was, you know, helpful. And I also... But you um, could only read sentences when you folded them together (laughs) and saw a different sentence. I also decided to become a cartoonist. So I didn't perform, and I've never been a performer, but I was a cartoonist for a long time. And that's how the whole thing got started. You wrote for the Harvard Lampoon in college. Um, And then I was looking at some kind of Simpsons wiki uh, the other day, and I noticed that Roughly 100% of the Simpsons staff wrote for the Harvard Lampoon at some point. <laughs> what is going on over there? We don't have any more well-known graduates than Conan O'Brien. So the kind right. of humor that Conan O'Brien, he was president of the Lampoon when I got on the staff. And um, I think there's a certain sense of humor that kind of grew out of that era. And by that, I mean late 80s, early 90s, Harvard Lampoon. But also, it's more like it's a graduate school of comedy. Like, almost everybody who gets the Lampoon immediately can ignores all their classes at Harvard um, and spends all their time working on the magazine. So you get a lot of um, intense focus. It's almost like a graduate school for comedy. And that's why um, the people who graduate from there tend to be more, a little more seasoned, even at age 22. And they have tend to have been inculcated in that kind of Conan O'Brien school of humor. Well, let me ask a kind of dumb question, the kind you would ask if you barely graduated from state school like I did. <laughs> Can, like... Does anybody outside of Harvard read the Lampoon? No, and in fact, it's not, <laughs> they don't even, uh, well, I was a trustee, and we didn't even really want them to distribute it outside of, of Harvard, because it's not that great. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what's the feeder system for all the comedy writers of America? It's, a, it's practice. It's, it's practice. I mean, okay, it's entertaining enough for a college humor magazine, but a few times we've tried to sell it on a newsstands and people don't buy it and they don't like it. And if they do, so we stopped having them do that. They distribute it to the dorms at Harvard and that's it. And so when they graduate, then they go on to write more, more professionally, I guess. Uh, We're talking to Bill Oakley from the Simpsons and Futurama and Portlandia. And also I know you are like, you're sworn to a certain amount of secrecy, right? But you're, you're working on something. Uh, what can you say about I it? I can only say that people who like The Simpsons and Futurama and that style of material will be delighted when the show, this new project is announced probably within just a week or two. Wow. That's all I can say. Are you sure you don't want to <laughs> I cannot say any more and probably I've already said too can much. Can we get Bill another beer? <laughs> um, is comedy writing... A gut thing or an intellectual thing? Because if we're talking about the Harvard Lampoon, that feels like an intellectual side of it. A bunch of obviously smart people. Uh, I think it's different for different writers. And there's some writers who basically sort of have computerish brains and go through for- joke formulas to come up with their jokes. And there's others who just seem to be struck by some sort of magic lightning. And their senses of humor, like for instance, if you're a Simpsons fan, you probably know who John Swartzwelder is. That guy. Yeah, has some sort of magic touch. And so did George Meyer, who was another classic Simpsons writer. Their humor wasn't mathematically produced like it is amongst so many other comedy writers. It came from, dare I say it, a higher power. Really? (laughs) Yes. So it was like that kind of a person just sitting there in the writer's room for weeks on end doing nothing. And then they just go into like a fugue state and have the greatest idea ever for an episode. That's exactly what happens, yes. I'm not kidding. It doesn't usually take weeks, though. It takes an hour or two. I've heard this term, writer's room, for years and years. It's kind of this mythical comedy place where, where TV shows get written. And for people who've worked in them, they, 
They, they just say that it's sort of unlike anything you've ever experienced. Can you describe what the Simpsons writers room is like? You mentioned this, and I think, I think I have a good metaphor for it. If you've ever been at a party that went on a little too late, and it was like 2 or 3 a.m., and there were like six to eight people still hanging around, and some of them were kind of funny and chatty, and some of them were drunk. Some of them were just huge jerks. <laughs> and there was kind of like chatting going on. That's what a writer's room is like. It's like that for 60 hours a week, 50 weeks a year for your job. And um, that sounds horrible. I, I didn't want to say it. And it totally depends on the tone of the room. Sometimes it's fun, but like, yeah, I mean, it's just like, you like humor. Here's all the humor you can imagine. 50 weeks a year with mean people, you know? And <laughs> so, I mean, that's what it's like. Um, it, believe me, it's fun. And it's fun when there's a, when there's a huge laugh, but a lot of times it, it's just, it's drudgery, or it's, um, depending on the room, there, it just can be an awkward social situation, you know? I mean, it's like a workplace, but combined with that kind of unpleasant drunken party that I just described. Wow. <laughs> this whole time I was bummed I never became a comedy writer, but now I feel like I dodged a real bullet. <laughs> we have Bill Oakley here. Your time at The Simpsons uh, is certainly something you're, you're pretty well known for. I'm wondering, is there a, a character or an episode or even one joke that you wrote that you feel extremely proud of, looking back? The episode that I wrote that I'm most proud of is the Who Shot Mr. Burns saga. Right. The, this is the guy who wrote that. <laughs> and I should say, I wrote this all, well, this is my, with my partner, Josh Weinstein, who right. ran the show and wrote with. The who you met in, like, high school? Yeah, ninth grade. Or kindred spirits. The guys that I met in high school work at Jiffy Lube. <laughs> I mean, nothing against it's a f proud profession, but like, you're meeting co-Simpsons writers in high school? Well, we weren't Simpsons writers then. All right. That's all I can say. But in the episode <laughs> that I'm most uh, proud of, of producing or shaping in some way is the Frank Grimes episode, which is Homer's enemy. Yes, he's um, sort of like the, the Michael Douglas character from Falling Down, yeah, right? Yeah, that's what he looked like. Um, but he is really more of a... He's more of a grim realist who's thrust into the Simpsons universe and starts pointing out, like, wait a minute, this guy is a safety inspector at a nuclear power plant? We're all doomed. And <laughs> some, like, sort of questioning the fabric of the series, and, and ultimately he pays the ultimate price for doing that. If you've seen the episode, you know what I mean. <laughs> Isn't Homer always trying to call him grimy or something? Yeah, Homer's trying to be friendly, but it just doesn't work. And anyway, it, it's an, a favorite among... Hardcore Simpsons fans, but although at the time I think people were mainly left scratching their heads um, by this strange, strange stuff. I thought it was great. I remember seeing that when it aired, you know, on a Sunday night and just being totally delighted by it. So you were one of a few because we didn't, this was before the internet and we got one letter complimenting it. It was from Ghana Army Base who was like, You're exactly right about what a bunch of idiots everyone else is. <laughs> And, and we were like, okay, we put it up in the writer's room. Signed, Norman Schwarzkopf. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a, an idea, a dream idea you have for a type of show that probably can't get the funding because maybe it's too out there that you would make if, if like you could snap your fingers and, and have the funding? Oh, this has happened actually. You believe <laughs> I've written, I mean, I think that Josh and I uh, both separately and together specialize in extremely niche material um, that only a few people would like and thus nobody wants to pay for. So we did a show, my favorite script we ever wrote was a show we did for HBO, um, I'd, I'd say maybe, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, and it was a dramedy set at the Rand Corporation during the Vietnam War. <laughs> and we have it some had fans a, of shadowy quasi-government research organizations. It, 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 it um, was basically kind of like Dr. Strangelove, the TV series. And um, the, everybody loved it, and our agent got on the desk of the president at HBO and begged him to make it, and he admitted he loved it, but he was like, nobody's going to want to watch this. And I think ultimately he was right, but <laughs> if you want to read the script, it's online somewhere. What was the show called? It was called Great Society. Great society. Yes. And so the script is floating around, but it never got animated. It wasn't animated. It was a live action oh. show. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask you about this, actually, because you've worked on both sides of this. Uh, is it hard, harder to write for live human characters because they can't just grow cartoon wings and fly off if you want them to? Like, No, it's much harder to write for animated characters because they can. Ha <laughs> ha. I thought that was pretty clever myself. <laughs> um, Don't quit your day job. Wait. <laughs> Forgot what uh, your day job was. Uh, look, the, the, 
the delightful thing about writing for live action characters is that there are limits. You're like, well, we got these four sets, we got these five actors, what are we gonna do? On The Simpsons, every single second, you're like, well, we could have an Itchy and Scratchy. Well, what if Troy McClure shows up? You know, what if there's a fantasy or a flashback or this and that and that? You know, the, the, it, the fact that you can do anything at any time is extremely intimidating and it, it takes a little bit of um, mental, mental gymnastics to sort it out. I see. Had, at any time while you were with The Simpsons, did you write any of the names of the movies that Troy McClure had appeared yes. in? Because if you yes. did, I want to touch you. I, well, I wrote, I wrote a number of them. I did write, they came to Burgle Carnegie Hall. That was you? <laughs> yeah, that was me. I'm touching Bill Oakley right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember where you were when you thought up the that? You asked what my, that's one of my favorite jokes of all time. And because it, it's so, it's not even that funny, but it's totally believable. <laughs> That he would have appeared in a movie probably in 1969 about a team of guys who work at a burgle. What is it a burgle in Carnegie Hall? It's a concert hall, you know. <laughs> it, it's anyway, but it sounds much like a it sounds like a Troy project. God, I already thought you were my personal hero, and then I found out you wrote that line, and now you're <laughs> even more my personal hero. We have Bill Oakley here. We're gonna have much more with him coming up in just a moment. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. Hey, it's Luke. I just wanted to remind you that Livewire, the podcast, can only happen because of members of our League of Extraordinary Listeners. And if you have not taken a moment to join the League, now is the time. Here's how it works. You go to livewireradio.org, you sign up for a recurring donation at whatever level feels right to you, and then we send you all kinds of cool thank yous. This week, if you join at the $5 a month recurring donation, come on, $5 a month. Think about that. What is that like? That's like getting the medium-sized coffee two times in a month instead of getting the large. Your stomach doesn't need the acid. Go with the medium coffee. Kick the five bucks towards Livewire every month, and we will send you a cool Livewire t-shirt. These are stylish. They are comfortable. I wear them all the time, mostly because they have my name on it, and I want people to know that I'm somebody. If you want to join the League of Extraordinary Listeners, head over to livewireradio.org right now to help us out. Welcome back to Livewire Radio, coming to you from Portland, Oregon. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. We are here with Bill Oakley, one-time co-head writer of The Simpsons and showrunner of that program. He's worked on tons of other things like Futurama, Mission Hill, Portlandia. Bill, you are one of our nation's leading McDonald's researchers or critic. Sometimes you even tweet things at them, suggestions for how they could make the menu better? You know, you know how Bernie Sanders is to Wall Street? That's how I am to McDonald's. <laughs> I, I make it my business to get in their face and, 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 and correct their wrongdoing. So far with not very much success, but I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> but, but this comes from a place of love. Yeah, right? You're not I used to love McDonald's, McDonald's and I still l love it a little bit. I just think that it's a colossal slow motion train wreck and it's been in the process for the past 15 years and I wish somebody would stop it. You're the Frank Grimes. That's exactly of right. McDonald's I culture. I, I, I couldn't have said it better. Well, as it happens, one of our other guests this episode is also a recognized master when it comes to shame eating Mickey D's late at night. Phoebe Robinson from Two Dope Queens. Phoebe, can we get you out here? Uh, Phoebe, you, you write about your often late night McDonald's habit. What's yeah. like the perfect McDonald's order for you? Oh, okay. So it's crispy chicken sandwich. And then I get a large fry, and then I get a small fry. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's all for me, jealous, so. <laughs> Have you ever done the thing I've done where you order so much food that you get two sodas to try to throw the no. person off? Like, this is gonna be for two people, probably. <laughs> no, I always get water, because I'm like, this is a healthy portion of the meal. <laughs> So I'm like, I'm on a diet. I'm getting Dasani water right now. Well, listen, since both of you <laughs> have obviously given a great amount of thought to the Golden Arches, uh, we wanted to get your opinion, sort of hardball style, on some recent McDonald's-related news stories. We're calling this segment Hot Cakes and Hot Takes. <laughs> ba -da -ba -ba -ba, McDonald's game. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. I'm not in love with the name Hot Cakes and Hot Takes, but we couldn't find anything that rhymes with fish sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going with that. Here's how this is going to work. I will set up an issue for you. These are real stories related to McDonald's in the news, and then I want to get your guys' hot take, okay? 
Issue number one, McDonald's announced this week that they will be pulling Ronald McDonald from public appearances because of the recent trend of people pretending to be creepy clowns. Phoebe Robinson, hot take. Is this the right move? This is why we can't have nice things. It's like, come on. He's a legend. You have to keep him around. I hate this. I hate this. Oh, my gosh. This is horrible. This is, like, as bad as Brexit. Like, this is devastating. Devastated. Bill Oakley, hot take. Clowns, what? I'm going to talk like Bernie Sanders for a second. This is symptomatic of the institutional myopia that has driven McDonald's into the rut that it currently resides in. (laughs) And I will tell you, I will tell you, the reason is that everyone knows that since Stephen King's It and John Wayne Gacy, clowns have been scary. McDonald's doesn't seem to realize this. They should have turned that into a, Ronald McDonald into a color scheme that was in the background of the restaurant in 1994 instead of leaving us with this crazy relic of the past. Thank you. Oh, my God. That's a hot take. Wait, how do you know all that info? You just, that was just on the tip of the tongue? I sp- this is what I do when I'm driving around. I'm thinking about solving McDonald's' wow. problems. All right. So impressed. This Next is issue on hot cakes and hot takes. 24-hour breakfast. Bill, hot take. All day breakfast was another mistaken... <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, all day breakfast is not a solution to McDonald's problems. It's the same crappy food served at a different time of day. That's all. Whoa. Okay. Phoebe Robinson. I mean. Hot or take? It's like breakfast, yeah. Like all day, yes. Like that is the oh. only right call. It's the only right call. Does it get- this is like hardball. It's great. I mean, it's not great tasting, but it's like. You want the option to have like a crappy pancake at 7 p.m. Like, I like that. That's America. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I could be a politician. I mean, this is like, this diplomatic. is how Donald Trump got started. Cause he's like, this was a great. Yeah. People are applauding me. I'm brilliant. It's like, you're garbage. Um, but anyway, I just, I hate him. All right. Here's our next issue on hot cakes and hot takes. In February of this year, McDonald's replaced toys with books in its Happy Meals for two weeks. Is that a ripoff for kids? Phoebe, scald me with your take. I mean, this is tough because I just wrote a book, so. (laughs) Terrible. That is terrible. So I'm like, yeah, kids should read, but also like, dude, I want a toy. Like, I don't know. I feel like what they should have done, there should have been the option. Do you want a book or do you want a toy? Like, don't like just make the decision. So you know which kids to bully later. (laughs) I'm on the fence about this. This is tough. The, the fence is no place for hot takes. Bill Oakley, right. cool me down with a take that is like the cool side of the McDLT. This is what they're doing. They're alienating their last loyal customers, which are kids that are too young to choose any other fast food restaurant. <laughs> All right. Next issue. Salads. I mean. Salads make up 2 to 3% of sales at McDonald's. Who are these people? No. Bill Give me a pizza you bit into too soon and now the top of your mouth is on fire. Hot take. <laughs> Sa- okay, McDonald's. I've had McDonald's salads and they're, they're well, they can compete with airplane salads and 7-Eleven salads. <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to win any new customers. They're only there for someone who is uh, desperate or there with a friend who, who is enjoying the actual one or two decent menu items. Okay. Yeah. Phoebe Robinson, give me a Georgia O'Keefe cow skull baking <laughs> in the desert sun take. I mean, if you go to McDonald's for a salad, like, I know what you're doing wrong with your life. Like, you're just not, that's so absurd. They don't do good salads. Like, that's, there's so many places you can get a salad. You go to McDonald's, you're ridiculous. You're, you're we're, crazy. We're in total agreement about yeah, this, Phoebe. I like this. Yeah. This is great. Oh, look, at, they're shaking hands on stage. <laughs> it's a meeting of the minds, and that is how you do hot cakes and hot takes. Phoebe Robinson and Bill Oakley, thank you so much. This week's show brought to you by New Belgium Brewing and their new seasonal ale, Pump Kick. 
This pumpkin seasonal gets a kick from cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, clove, and cranberry for an ale that pairs well with everything this time of year has to offer. More info at newbelgium.com. Please welcome Blind Pilot back to Livewire. Started working at the second hand. I thought it would make me more colorful. I saw the world as a stitch and patch. I saw the sky as torn gray wall. I started working as a That is Blind Pilot, right here on Livewire Radio. All right, we got to get out of here. But first, we got to tell you who helped make this episode of Livewire possible. Huge thanks to our guests, Phoebe Robinson, Bill Oakley, Dr. Brian Drucker, and Blind Pilot. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Hatton is our producer and editor. Jason Rouse is our announcer, and he wrote for this week's show, as did Brennan Dwyer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom. 
A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. House Sound by D. Neil Blake. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop and Carlson Audio. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing manager. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Community Foundation and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire, made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, special thanks to Brett Holstrom and Tali Ovadia. More information about the show or becoming a member of Livewire can be found at livewireradio.org. Thank you so much. My name is Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.